Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel. I edit the CoinWorld podcast and I'm here to let you know about another fun and free product we offer through CoinWorld, our email newsletters. With our newsletters, you can pick from 10 options like US coins, world coins, or paper money to tailor the high quality content you receive. Pick the topics that interest you most or choose them all and get the latest from CoinWorld delivered straight to your inbox. Signing up is free and easy to do. I've put a link in the show notes for you, so just click there, choose your content, and your email newsletters will be on the way shortly. Click on that link today and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. And we are going to go back in time this week and dig around in ancient coin lore and talk about all sorts of fun things like cultural property and the famous story of the Bible's widow mites and talk to an expert in Judean coins, David Hendon. So we think this is a special episode of the Coin World podcast. Certainly, every week is something new and different and fun. And if you agree with that appraisal, and if you've been enjoying previous podcasts, if you enjoy the podcasts you listen to today, please remember to continue listening every week and subscribe on whatever platform made your podcast. And also, feel free to reach out to us uh, on email or through social media. There's a Coin World Facebook page and other social media accounts uh, generally post podcast content. If you post comments there, there's a decent chance we'll see them. Again, please remember to keep on uh, listening and subscribe. That is old news, Chris, but also in old news or <laughs> news about things that are old. We're going to talk about cultural property. The reason we're diving into this is because of the story that I just wrote last week about an event that happened on Valentine's Day. It was a wonderful gift for Valentine's Day from the United States to the nation of Cyprus, where U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents from the Baltimore office handed over seven ancient coins to the ambassador to the nation of Cyprus. So why did this happen? What was what were these coins? Why is it so special or newsworthy? Well, it turns out that these seven coins were the coins at the center of what is called a test case. You may remember from our interview with Peter Tompa of the Ancient Coin Collectors Guild, the ACCG back in 2009, in response to import restrictions that were enacted or that went into effect in July of 2007, the ACCG was formed after that. And then they decided to bring a test case to challenge the import restrictions saying these aren't legal. This doesn't apply because they're already governed by other laws of the European Union and the United Nations. Back to the convention, there's a Convention of Cultural Property back in 1971 or three, somewhere in there. So the ACCG acquired, made the purchase of seven very common, uh, some of them very, very worn, seven common coins that conceivably circulated in Cypriot region or in Cyprus back in the day from like 87 BC to, you know, 2180, somewhere in there for a couple hundred years. It was, there's five or six different types of coins under various rulers, Severus and some others, some uh, Augustus, some unknowns, just some random bronzes. Uh, There's a couple coins in there that show Zeus, but 
they bought these coins from Spink in London specifically so that they could have standing to challenge the import restrictions. They imported the coins. <laughs> Very that, wise of them to pick low-valued coins so that they – Well, yeah. Uh, in, I mean, in, in the event that they lost the case, which they ultimately did, they weren't out too much money, which is correct. It's perfectly sensible. But it, they, they spent about $200 on these seven coins. They spent an additional $75 on seven Chinese coins, which are not – part of this repatriation and and who's the disposition they're, of those they're Chinese- not part they're not part of this repatriation but the united states does have a similar agreement with china to the one that's at issue here with cyprus though yes correct? yes these are called memorandums of understanding and the u.s now has mous as their shorthand you know with italy iraq cyprus as you say china there's others out there bulgaria i believe there's one that was just went into effect for jordan we'll have a story about that soon these MOUs MOUs govern the transit, the repatriation, the travel and trade of these coins. And as you know, it's a good thing they chose some affordable coins or or very cheap coins because they ended up losing the case. But these coins were sent to a then ACCG president or board member in Missouri, except they never made made it there because they were seized by customs. And, you know, here we are. That was the purchase was back in April 2009. So we're talking almost 11 years ago for this disposition. Now, the Customs and Border Protection Office, the head of the Baltimore office, they had a media event, a presentation on Valentine's Day and talked about and was as she is quoted as saying as, you know, the U.S. is proud to repatriate these priceless artifacts of Cypriot culture back to Cyprus. That seems to be overstating the case a little bit. Well, there's a case to be made if you want to talk about honoring cultural property. The dilemma, as Peter Tompa, the executive director of the ACCG explained in our interview like three months ago. Uh, yeah, I think it's episode 36 or something. Ancient coins don't fit into modern borders and they were specifically made for trade. You know, they weren't made to just stay inside a country's origin. It's just like in modern times, the Sacagawea dollar is used in Central America and that is okay. The U.S. doesn't go chase them back and doesn't, the U.S. is perfectly happy that these coins circulate outside of the borders and and function as money because the U.S. gets seniorage for everyone that's not held in the U.S. and, you know, for everyone that's issued into circulation. So you can kind of look at it through that lens. And, you know, when you're talking about a very common and what many would look at and say, well, that looks like junk. These coins, they're not going to have a provenance in an auction catalog dating back 30, 40 years or or beyond, certainly even today, because they're not the amount of labor required to provide that information, just it doesn't make sense because of their low marginal value. Well, a cultural property expert, I am not. But it strikes me that the argument that coins are meant to circulate so antique coins can traverse national boundaries without you know, causing any cultural harm, I can understand the argument particularly pertaining to fairly common coins. I mean, the pieces involved in this case were not extremely rare, you know, and I found the use uh, the use of the term priceless in the ceremony, in, in the oh, woman's yeah. commentary in the ceremony, you know, obviously that's, 
to say that they're priceless is, as I said earlier, uh, overstating it quite a bit. It does seem to me that the definition of circulation to me implies a direct commercial purpose in the sense that you wouldn't walk into 7-Eleven and buy a pack of parliaments using an ancient Greek tetradram, right? Like they're not designed for individual commercial use or for an expressly transactional purpose. They cross these borders as collectibles and part of their collectible appeal or part of their appeal as collectibles is their cultural significance and is their historical significance. Now, the line, and again, I think in this case, the line was drawn a little bit too brightly around material that wasn't really worth a lot. But it seems to me that the line is not, to me, the definition of, of circulating coinage wouldn't necessarily encapsulate ancient coins. But I don't think that circulation is a necessary definition for collectors to be able to acquire certain material that they want. And I think that there are instances of some material, you know, very, very rare items, items that have, you know, originate from a very specific historical episode. I could see where host countries should have a say in what happens with those coins. But in the case of coins that are worth $200 and aggregate. In the, that, that are worth $200 in total, the sum of the value of all the coins is $200. And that you quote someone in the article that says that the coins are, and I quote, bulk material readily available in the marketplace and generally traded in larger quantities between dealers. I mean, these are not necessarily museum quality items that we're talking about. And so it does seem to me that this case this case seems like an odd one to celebrate, and having a ceremony to celebrate the return of the coins, that seems like they're celebrating a relatively minor victory, and a but, victory that is being cast as not a victory at all, but a defeat by many in the coin, in the numismatic case. Well, so the customs in Cyprus are celebrating the event, obviously, and it is not a victory for the numismatic hobby. I venture to guess it cost more to hold the event than the value of the coins that well, were, that were repatriated. And That's what I was going to say. It does seem like they're taking a victory lap. <laughs> it's intentional. You know, this is, hey, you know, we got your coins and you're not going to be able to import them. And as you correctly note, despite, you know, viewing, you know, no, these aren't being circulated now as, as legal tender, but the fact remains the vast number of coins that can be found today are not of the level worth sort of the museum scrutiny and the, the national treasure type scrutiny. And this is the whole unfolding of the memorandums of understanding with all these nations. This is developed out of a very specific political window that is anti-collector. You'll hear Peter explain that in the, in the earlier podcast. Yeah, and, he, he feels fairly strongly on this issue, unsurprisingly. And unsurprising, sure. And, and you know, as, as a journalist, I, I can recognize both sides of all sides of the issue and say, you know, yeah, that makes sense here. It doesn't make sense here. You know, let's weigh it out. What many in the hobby seem to acknowledge or happy to acknowledge is how a system much like what is in use in the United Kingdom, the portable antiquity scheme under the 1997 Treasure Act, I think it was, that has a a functionality where these coins can be, when they're found, uh, local authorities are notified. They get professionals who are trained in the you know, removal of the artifacts and gathering of data around those artifacts and, and where, they're, where they're located that preserves that information with respect to the archaeological record. But then 
this also provides an economic outlet that can help encourage folks to go the legal way. And many of the countries, the United Kingdom is unique in that respect. And most of these other countries certainly lack that sort of official, any official channel for legitimizing fines. And in some cases, uh, nations are very corrupt. I mean, unfortunately, there's corruption is in the heart of humanity in some respects. And there are folks who are looking to go outside of official means, always, 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 at whatever whatever level. But at least with the portable antiquity scheme, you have some impetus, some some reason to go about things the right way. And your find is, um, there's an economic reward for it. And again, it, it can serve uh, the academic side of things. This idea that most coins that are out there that are still in the ground are not priceless artifacts. There certainly are some, that, you know, as, as we talked to Peter, the, uh, the horde of Athenian owl coins that are coming out. There's various estimates as to how many coins are in this, this horde or hordes, you know, the, the lack of data surrounding the horde itself or hordes itself uh, is problematic in as much as, in a sense, they're flooding the market. The good thing is they're so ubiquitous, they're so such a beloved type that that may, in the short term to intermediate term, keep prices low. Experts suggest that the market can absorb them, whatever that number is, because it is the iconic ancient coin, in a sense, that's affordable, certainly. You know, the, the Ides of March coin is probably, you know, is number one in the top 100 ancient coins book, but that's, nope, you know, only a handful of folks, relatively speaking, can afford that. So it is a loss to archaeology and to the coin collecting community that we don't know where these hordes are, hordes are found, how many coins are in the hoard. When a hoard is found properly, you can do some die analysis and you know progression and see which coins were struck earlier than others. You have information as far as what other coins are found in those hordes that give you a sense of, well, these coins even though they were issued 300 miles away, they, they were also circulating here or were being used in commerce here. So there's all this ancillary data that is lost. And, and that is a shame. And from the archaeological side, that is important. There's no set of uh, circumstances is going to make everybody happy. But certainly, you know, we see how the UK system, at least provides an economic incentive for doing the right thing. And all that fine stuff is, is available online through a couple um, British um, uh, academic sources. And you can go find that hoard data for those coins there, Roman Britain and others, that unfortunately we don't have for a lot of other places. And it's not happening uh, like it used to, say, 100 years ago. People who are finding stuff now, they don't want to let people know where they got them. Cause it's like, you know, you go mushroom hunting. You're not going to tell everybody where you got all these big mushrooms or fishing. Everybody who's uh, who's a serious, you know, fisher person, they don't tell their spot, right? You know, I mean, that's it's analogous. So that's thing that w is lost in this. What do you think, Chris? I would say that I don't think that the system that we had a hundred years ago is necessarily enviable either. I imagine that any ancient coin expert would acknowledge that the historical collecting of ancient coins has been marred 
by a, his, a history of imperialism and cultural theft. And that's not to imply that private collectors today are cultural thieves. And it's not to imply that people who want to collect ancient coins want to you know, steal objects of, of cultural value from societies that may have been subjugated by imperial powers in the, you know, in the last few centuries, particularly European and uh, to an extent American colonial powers, though in the case of regions where these ancient coins are found that tended to be uh, European imperial powers, though, of course, you did have groups uh, like the Ottoman Empire who would also um, have uh, you know, more than a century ago, laid claim to a lot of these objects that they would have taken from their constituent territories. So, well, the to, history of mankind is one of killing each other and fighting over things. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. But two wrongs or two dozen wrongs or two thousand wrongs don't make a right. And and you know, and again, and I think that the hobby and many in, you know museums and other institutions that have taken some of this material have made efforts to try to understand the sort of troubling history and in some cases have where appropriate and in some cases some might argue where inappropriate given objects back so that the you know the cultures and the regions from which some of these objects originate can have the material that said it seems like and you mentioned Jeff and I think most experts in these fields hold up the British system as being the ideal balance between state interests and, and private collecting interests and hobbyists. And if a similar system could be applied in other countries, and if some of these MOUs could be modified to narrow the definition of coins that constitute cultural property, or if certain um, other countries' governments were able to have a system by which they could you know, lay claim to certain fines, but they would release uh, some material or the majority of material found to uh, a private market, it seems like that would tidy up this issue a little bit. Obviously, we are a, a long way from, uh, from an ideal system. Um, in fact, you quote Peter Tampa in this article uh, describing the 2007 import restrictions as a product of cronyism. So, you know, there's clearly um, some antipathy between the camps here, which is I, I would imagine understandable as someone who is not an ancient coin expert or ancient coin collector. I have a, a burgeoning interest in ancient coins. I think that they're tremendously interesting and and rewarding to collect. I just haven't invested a lot of time in in researching them and and becoming as passionate about them as other series. But I, from an outside perspective, it seems as though there's a middle ground to be struck. But this recent ceremony from uh, customs and border protection. I don't think that ceremony is really going very far towards reconciling uh, these different attitudes. Not at all. And uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate that um, in many instances, revolving or involving cultural property, the expertise required to determine some information to tell certain coins from others and and to place items in a uh, timeline of context is such that it takes a specialist collector to do and that is certainly a skill set that you know most people customs agent or not just don't possess so you're trying to have somebody who has played t-ball be an umpire in the major leagues and it's a hard balance to strike in that i don't want to beat any more dead owls though uh, and it, well it is I, i'll say this though and this is something else that i think both sides probably are cognizant of and and should be cognizant of and is that some people's you know significant amounts of money significant investment and to some extent some people's livelihoods can be tied up 
in acquiring some of this material. You, you cite a statistic in your article that I thought was interesting, Jeff, that in 2019, Customs and Border Patrol recorded 23 seizures of cultural property. And the estimated value of between all of these seizures was over a million dollars. So now if you compare that to the illegal drug trade or any number of other sort of cross-border illegal nefariousness, not to say that coin importation is necessarily nefariousness, but in the eyes of Customs and Border Patrol, it it may be. Well, uh, if, if the laws of the land are, are what they are and you're violating well, right. them, and, that's, and, you know, and Exactly. Whether and you agree with C- them or not, but and CBP, yeah, they they have um you know they have an obligation to enforce the laws as written and and to enforce international agreements that we've that we're um, party to. But you know that's it's a million dollars worth of material, which might have represented for some of the people involved a fairly significant investment. And that that's not to say that we we throw legitimate concerns about respecting other countries' cultural property and cultural heritage out the window. But it is to say that you know we should be mindful that there is serious money tied up in this, and that there are moneyed interests on both sides of this debate that have very, very tangible horses in this race. So oh, that's, sure. it's, it's worth talking sure. about in that context and, as well. And, and and I guess one final thought I would add is, you know, that's 24 seizures that of, of material that, um, that they were able to seize. And, you know, obviously the amount of stuff coming in is probably far greater than that. That being said, you know, a million dollars of stuff, 23 seizures, that's like 40,000, 45,000 to $50,000 a seizure, which in some ancient artifacts is nothing. I mean, how, not, not that, not that the Elgin marbles are being brought in today, (laughs) but you know, some of this stuff, you know, some items are hundred thousand dollar items. And, and so a couple of the facts surrounding this, I think are included or highlighted to make people think, more of it than maybe it should be, you know, all oh, these ancient coins and they're, you know, from 2000 years ago. Well, guess what? I can go buy an ancient bronze coin from 1800 years ago, 1700 years ago for $5, $10. And just because, just because it's old doesn't mean it's valuable, but to somebody who doesn't know that gets them starry eyed and they go, Oh my gosh, that must be worth a fortune. They said it's priceless. Well, beauty yeah, and, and value is in the eye of the beholder. And and I think that also underscores the fact that this is as interesting and worthwhile a debate as this is. This is a debate that's being had largely outside of the public eye. I don't think the average voter is really tuned in to the sort of international politics of cultural property and the you know and the ancient coin collecting community. I don't think that these are these are not issues that are front of mind for. I would hazard a guess at most people. And so it's it's tough because these are issues that I think elected officials probably have to contend with. And I think a lot of those MOUs might have been written with good intentions or or might have played an important role in our diplomacy in some of these countries. You know, as they, whether they it was have, certainly have been used as uh, a bargaining chip carrot, in international yeah. negotiations, for yeah. example. Yeah, I was, was say carrot and stick bargaining chip, yep. fine too. That's that's cool. So so let's not beat any yeah. more dead owl coins. But, <laughs> right. um, let, sure. Let's let's look uh, to history. Some other history, though, not not related to cultural property. Kind of. This, yeah. This yeah. Actually, so well, what this, was happening this week in history, Jeff? Well, it's funny because this actually has some. There is some overlap as far as you know legalities of ownership what happens every four years and there's a couple answers you can you can go with but well there's, there's a presidential election in this country um what else happens uh, 
presidential election, you have the Olympics. But what I'm thinking of is leap year. So we are going mm-hmm. back to That's February true. 29. That is the bonus yeah. day. Bonus yep. day. We get to work one more day this year and don't get paid more for it. <laughs> if you're salary. <Dang. laughs> so what happened on February 29th? Well, let's go back to 1944. What was happening then? That was when the export license see, there is a tie-in, was ah, granted to Egyptian King Farouk for a 1933 St. Gaudens gold $20 double eagle. Oh, interesting. Because I, I, I knew that King Farouk had owned one. That's that's interesting. That, that, that was the law that enabled him to do it. That was why he was able to get that out of the country. That was why when the specimen believed to be his that came onto the market with dealer Steve Fenton out of uh, London and some others, that was eventually sold in 2002 in New York. That because of that export license that was granted this week in history, 1944. That's why we still have that example available for private ownership. Who owns it? We don't know. There's lots of speculation. It was on exhibit in New York City for a long time. Any number of rich folks are said to be the owner, and the government got to split the proceeds with the uh, the dealers that were involved in that. But that's a that's a pretty funny uh, anecdote in light of our cultural property discussion, and and the timeliness just works. Now we're going to look back at coin world history as well. Yes, and indeed. We go to 1973, and that was because our interview subject, David Hendon, that was when he first published a book, I think. David Hendon worked as um, a medical journalist for a long time. He, he wrote a number of articles and eventually a book. A book that he published in 1973 was called Death as a Fact of Life, which was essentially just you know reflections on his work as a medical reporter, some thoughts about emerging medical technologies and their relationship to human longevity and you know different responses to death meta- in the medical community and in other contexts. So it's quite an interesting book. Um, I'd actually love to get my hands on a copy and read the entire thing, not just excerpts. Um, but he published the book. In um, 1973. Yeah, it was originally published in 1973. So we decided in honor of that, that we would look at a coin world issue. Uh, the particular one we're looking at uh, is from February 28th, not the leap year day. Um, Correct. February twenty, <laughs> Close, but not, not close, quite. So, close. But, but see, what's interesting is this is a cover date of February 28th, but it may as well be April 1st, because at least from my perspective, looking back at this, what's the big headline in Coin World that week? Plans for new Denver Mint, bright McDonald Briefs OMB on project. So that, that, that was a very optimistic headline for a story that didn't end up going anywhere. So Jeff, how did, w- what unfolded? So uh, go back to uh, 1971 and there's started to be talk of the need for a new Denver Mint facility. The current, as it turns out, an original Denver Mint facility opened in 1906 as a Denver Mint uh, after being an assay office before that for, I think, two decades. They were running out of room, though. You know, production was was uh, going full steam. You know, you think the baby boom, you know, you're hitting the, the economic stride, really, of the 50s and 60s. They, they were running out of room to produce coins. They said, hey, we need more space. They started working to actually build a new facility. As it turns out, now, this process... I won't say languish, but it, it sort of fits and starts from 71 until 76, uh, seeking, um, there were some GAO reports, there was some uh, bills introduced into Congress, there was testimony in front of various committees, 
Eventually, though, the plans had to be abandoned. That was uh, sometime, I believe, in 1976, we think, when, when those plans were finally abandoned. The Denver Mint, instead of having a new one, they just had an expansion, and that was uh, approved, and construction began in late May of 1984. The new visitor center was dedicated in 1991. The headline in the Coin World story, the subhead, I should say, says something interesting. Coinage forecast zooms to 16 billion by 1980. 16 billion, 1980. Remember that because according to the U.S. Mint website on their about page for Denver Mint, they didn't actually have uh, the high water mark for production until 2000. That's when the Denver Mint made 15.4 billion coins in fiscal year 2000. So they didn't make it to 16 million by that point, And that was 20 years after the projection. So that explains right there. That's one nugget that explains why the new Denver Mint facility that CoinWorld reported as plans were coming, it never materialized. It's always interesting to see, I mean, in the context of, of CoinWorld specifically, but it's always interesting to see old headlines that reference things that never happened or make reference to plans for years that have already gone by. I remember when I was in high school, we watched the uh, the televised, I'm sure someone can correct me if I'm wrong on this, you know, the first televised presidential debate in 1960, and you had Kennedy and Nixon, you know, talking about the issues of the day. And and Kennedy was talking about, you know, trying to, you know, like have more hydroelectric power, you know, by 1975, we hope to generate this much power. So it's always funny to hear, you know, in 1973, they thought, oh, you know, there'll be a brand new Denver Mint facility. And then, you know, whether it was because of the politics or the economics of opening a new Mint facility, it never came to pass. So a very, very interesting story. Awesome. So let's go to series because we've, we've been talking quite a bit. So let's quickly dive into talk about the widow's mite because that's such yes. a famous uh, ancient coin type. And then we can do trivia and, and get to the interview. So in reference to our interview with David Hendon, who is an expert on ancient coins, specifically ancient coins of Judea, we thought that we would explore for our series this week, one of the most common and commonly collected uh, types of ancient coins that circulated around uh, the time of Christ and actually is referenced in the Bible. I'm referring, of course, to the widow's mite. Now, the biblical story of the widow's mite comes to us uh, in the book of Mark, if if any of you are, are uh, New Testament readers and believers out there. Uh, the book of Mark, Jesus and uh, some of his disciples uh, happened upon uh, a number of people paying tribute uh, into the uh, the treasury, into the Roman treasury. And, you know, they noticed everyone coming up and, and putting their money into the collection facility, whatever it was. And Jesus remarked that a widow who, you know, by all accounts and sort of by her appearance was destitute and had nothing, put two mites, two small bronze coins over to us leptin, and we'll get there in a second, put two of them into the, um, into the collection for the treasury. And he remarked that it was surprising that this woman had given seemingly all she had to give or all she had extra to give because she seemed to be very poor. Whereas wealthy people would put up many, many silver coins. So it seems like they were giving more, but in reality, those silver coins constituted a smaller share of their overall wealth. He was essentially remarking that, you know, oftentimes, you know, the poorest people or people who don't have means are often very generous despite their limited resources. So the sort of two widow's mites became a symbol for sort of the generosity of the poor and to sort of indicate that even a really small contribution is still valuable, especially if it accounts for a large share of your wealth. So the coins themselves that are actually specifically referenced are leptin. 
um, which are small bronze coins. The word leptin actually means small or thin, and true to their name, they are small, thin bronze coins. It's a fractional unit used in the Greek-speaking world. It's essentially the way that we would describe um, you know, fractions of a dollar in cents. A leptin was a fraction of the Greek uh, silver dram. So these small bronze coins were minted at a number of different places in the ancient world, but they circulated in Judea. And these coins are very common. You can actually find them all over the numismatic industry. You can find them at coin shows. You can find them in, there are a lot of magazine ads where you can find them. And they often come packaged in, you know, small historical and informational displays that, you know, make reference to their role in the Bible and sort of, and Jesus's commentary on, on sort of the widow and her story. And sort of the selling point for these is that you can own ancient coins that circulated in, you know, in the regions where Jesus was ostensibly active, you know, and you can own these interesting pieces of ancient Mediterranean, ancient Judean history. So they're not really sought after by really high-end collectors. I imagine that most really experienced ancient coin collectors already have, you know, an example or two or, or many examples and probably all they need. But they make for a really interesting and accessible starting point into ancient coins for and, and sort of biblical coinage. There are actually a few different coins that are mentioned in the Bible, and we talked briefly with David Hendon about that very issue. And so people who are interested in biblical history, people who are interested in the economic history of, you know, sort of what is today Israel-Palestine and that whole region of the world, you know, and people who are just interested in, in ancient coins and sort of the ancient economy more broadly. So they represent an accessible and, and historically rich starting point for some um, uh, ancient coin collectors. So if anyone uh, is, is interested in this, they should, you know, go out and try to find uh, widow's mites. I imagine you won't have to look very far. Absolutely. Now, speaking of small change, you know what uh, time it is? Uh, it is? I'm not sure, Jeff. Is it trivia o'clock? It, it is. It is time to answer the trivia from last week. And this uh, gets to the heart of small change. Last week, we had Art, Art Friedberg on, uh, paper money expert, among other things. So we had a paper money question, and that was, what is the lowest denomination of U.S. paper money ever printed Small change, thinking about it, do you have any idea? This is a novice level question. Ooh, novice level question. So I had better get it. Is it three cents? You've got it. Boom. You've got it. You've given give me your three cents worth. <laughs> three cents worth, yeah. So that that would have been one of the fractional currency issues, I would imagine. Absolutely. And Actually, uh, you know, definitionally, it would have to be one of the fractional currency issues. Yes. That, that legend has it. There was uh, stamps denominated to, uh, that value. And so the, that was something that could be used to, to purchase uh, that stamp, I believe. So that was the answer. Now I'm going to ask a new question because we have it. David uh, on board. You mentioned Judean coins. What is a Judea Capta coin? This is an expert level question. We'll have Ooh, the answer to that next A little week. tougher. But uh, what is a Judea Capta coin? You can think about that while you listen to the interview with David Hendon. We are at the New York International Numismatic Convention and lucky to be joined today with David Hendon, the author of several numismatic books, well-known researcher, collector, and volunteer at the American Numismatic Society. Thank you for being here today, David. Hey, thanks for having me, you guys. 
So your work in numismatic publishing deals largely with biblical coinage, which is familiar to the faithful who pay close attention to the coinage mentioned in the Bible. For the benefit of heathens like me, who probably could have used more Sunday school, what are the parameters of biblical coinage? Are they just coins that appear in the Bible, coins that were minted around the time of Christ, or is there a more specific definition? Ah, well, there's a more general definition, but the way, the, the way I define it is this. In Guide to Biblical Coins, I... Because a lot of people ask the same question. And what I say is that I consider a biblical coin to be any coin that circulated during the time around when the Old Testament was written down or the New Testament was, uh, you know, played out and later written down. So in a way, that can take us from around the earliest coinage in the Holy Land, which is the 6th century BCE, and it can take us right up through the second century, uh, you know, after Hadrian's victory over Bar Kokhba. Uh, there are coins that were issued in the Holy Land subsequent to that. Um, but, and then there are certainly people mentioned in the Bible. You have Pontius Pilate. You have, you know, a lot of people who struck coins are mentioned in the Bible. Agrippa, Herod. Um, the Maccabees are in the book of Maccabees, but that's part of the of some Bibles, but it hasn't been codified as part of other Bibles. So uh, that's, that's pretty much how I define it. So we're looking at about 800 year period then? It's, a, it's about an eight, you could say 800, you could, you, you, about around an 800 year period uh, that, yeah. So that, I mean, I, I have the book at home and, and both at my library, at my desk at, at work. Uh, that is quite a, a span of coinage and it covers a lot of well-known types. Well, it does, it go, I mean, the way, the way I organized it, and, you know, of course, it's just like people say to me, what should I collect? I said, well, collect what turns you on. So when I, when I wrote that book, I tried to figure out knowing uh, the, the, the Holy Land the way I do. As you know, I've excavated in Israel uh, for several seasons, and I've been involved there over 50 years. What I tried to do is understand the best way to teach people about the coins that circulated there during this time of intense interest. So it started with the Persian period coins, but then it includes the Ptolemaic and Seleucid coins that were minted there in that area. And you, you also, you have to draw some artificial lines, really. Do you, do you say that Sidon and Tyre of Phoenicia were not part of the Holy Land? Well, they're not because they weren't part of ancient Judea or Samaria. But ancient Phoenicia was, you know, sort of very connected. But I had to draw some lines in the book. So I, so I took only the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid coins that were minted locally and only the Persian period coins that were minted locally. And then I showed how that transitioned into the independent Jewish coins of the Maccabees, the Herods, and the Jewish wars that came later. So biblical coinage has many eye-catching types, like widow's mites, tribute pennies, the, the coin in the fish's mouth, the 30 pieces of silver. Do you think that the pieces that are well-known, or at least recognizable to people, sort of well-versed in the Christian tradition, is that a reasonably good representation of well, biblical coinage? So here's, here's the problem with that, Chris, is that all of those are stories from the New Testament. And if you ask me, I think that the New Testament is good history. You know, you put it next to Josephus, uh, Tacitus, and you can see that there are, it's, it's clearly history. 
You know, it's 2,000-year-old history. How many times has it been retold? But the problem is that there's not one place in the New Testament or the Old Testament where they, they say that uh, they talk about a tribute, the tribute penny, as it were, although the Bible doesn't say tribute penny. It says tribute, in, in, it's in Greek, and it says drachma. Uh, and that, you know, that ended up getting translated because when the King, James, the King James Bible was translated in England, um, the, circulate, the main circulating silver coin was a, a penny. Yeah. So they, they, they made it into their own vernacular. So the coin in the fish's mouth, I mean, I, I assume that those, I mean, Jesus was a very smart and intuitive guy. He understood, he understood the religion of the time and he understood sort of the needs of the people that were his followers. And one of the needs was that people needed him to explain how the ethical system, the religious ethical system worked. And so he tried to tell stories to explain this using objects of everyday use. And coins were objects of everyday use. The problem is that at the time that these were written down, there was really nothing specific. I'll give you a really good example. So they, so they brought Jesus the coin and uh, they said, you know, uh, uh, whose image is on the coin? And, and, and he said, you know, pay unto Caesar that which Rendering. belongs to Caesar, pay unto God that which belongs to God. But it doesn't ever say that it's a silver coin, uh, really. And even if it does say that it's a silver coin, we have a small problem. Silver drams and denarii of Tiberius and Augustus rarely circulated in that area in ancient times. We know this from archaeology. So there are leading numismatists and archaeologists in Israel who believe that it's much more likely that it was actually a relatively common bronze coin of Augustus or Tiberius, which we know did circulate there. But, you know, because as they retold the story, it became better to make it into a silver coin. We know that there was probably a story that went around a coin, and it went something like that. But to try to identify what the coin was based on what came down to us is almost impossible. Just go to the widow's mite. What we do know about the widow's mite is that it was the smallest money that circulated there at the time. Well. The coins that we call the widow's mites today, the coins of Alexander Janaeus, he died in 76. And it's possible that coins like his continued to be minted until around 40 by his successors. Were those coins the widow's mites? We don't know, but we do know they were the smallest coins struck in the area at that time. And we know they continued to circulate for as long as 400 years from archeology. span So it makes a lot of sense that, a co that one of those coins, or maybe a small coin of Herod the Great, could have been the widow's mite. But to say it was something specific, we can't really know. So you, you've referenced archaeological research. Uh, I want to touch base later on that in your specific experience. But uh, let me call an audible here. Uh, when has your and, and other archaeological research, when have you seen it uh, come in congruence with the Bible? And when have you seen it go the other direction and, and provide evidence that's in contradiction or uh, maybe new, a, a new pathway. So I'm not, I'm not going to be good at, you know, uh, citing every single uh, specific excavation. Sure. I, look, I read, the, I read the two English-Israeli newspapers every day, and I have 
read them every day for almost 40 years. Uh, Now it's easier because I read them online. And I'm in touch with the archaeologists in Israel and the numismatists and the curators at the museums. So I do hear these stories. I mean, I'll give you one example that's not not Bible pure and simple, but it's related enough that I think that you can, you can get what I'm talking about. So in the 1950s, the early Israeli archaeologists were excavating Masada, and they had Josephus's story about the mass suicide at Masada when the Romans came. Today, you can read articles that say, well, you know, wait a minute, in the 50s, they said that a lot of that stuff was true or might have been true. But when we look at it today, we realize that all those, the skeletons of all those bodies never showed up. You know, there's, there are some things that ring true, but there are some things that don't ring true. Uh, and I think that, you know, you can go through all of the Bible. I mean, look, there are, there are towns that they're excavating as, as recently. I mean, I was looking at my, uh, my friend Steve Notley, who's a professor at Nyack College, and does some archaeology there. He's working at a site that they think they've identified and connected with a city mentioned in the New Testament. You know, I mean, a lot of the cities uh, that are mentioned in the New Testament, we don't even have positive identification of them today. Um, On the other hand, we know places where they found things that seem like cities, that seem like they might be in the right place. Um, We know from the New Testament that what did Jesus do for a living, and what did his father do for a living? Carpentry. They were carpentries. There's only one Thank problem. Thank God you're here, Jeff. <laughs> good for you. You've been reading it. There's only one problem. I, I, I wasn't raised a heathen like Chris. <laughs> there, was, there was much more stonework done in the ancient Near East building than there was woodwork, especially in the towns like Nazareth and Sepphoris, where I excavated, where Jesus may have been in his youth and where his father may have gone to work. So it seems like... There's a very good chance that they might not have been carpenters. They may just have been construction workers. And And at a certain point, that got translated into carpenters because at the time that these things were translated 500 years ago in England... Yeah, the King James. Most of the people were... Most of the construction people were carpenters. But I think that in the first century, uh, most of the construction workers were probably stonemasons and bricklayers. And so, and that's where archaeological evidence helps shine a light into it, it can, some of this. It, it can, yeah. I mean, and you know, there, there. Look, people, people, people today, and especially collectors, they want to know specifics. You know, was this coin used in the temple? Did the, somebody pay this coin? Yeah, the temple was tax. This, or yeah, the... Was this coin one of the thirty pieces of silver? Could it have been? Man, I don't know, but I can tell you this: I've been doing ancient coins of the area, the, the Holy Land, let's say, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine. I've been doing it for 50 years. and uh, Started when you were five. I, and I, <laughs> I started when I was in my tw- uh, early 20s when I was a volunteer in the Six-Day War, although I want to be quick to say that I have been collecting coins since I was eight, very aggressively, but not necessarily ancient coins. Um, but if, if you, you know, go, go back, I've probably handled a million coins. And, and looked, studied a million coins over these years. And, you know, we don't know the exact story about any of them unless I pick one up in the ground, I know where I found it. Otherwise, you don't really believe anything about the coins except 
it is a coin. So that brings up a good point. Uh, certainly, Chris and I wanted to raise was how important it is to have uh, the archaeological evidence recorded. Uh, you know, what kind of threat is there with looting going on? We, we know of it in other places, say Bulgaria and the Greek lands and all that, but how significant of a challenge is that? I know there's the Israeli Antiquities Authority that governs some things. Can you talk about that? Sure. It, first of all, Israel is one of the very few source countries that does have a legal market. It Today, it's a lot more closely regulated than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. But there are licensed dealers in Israel all around uh, the new city in Jerusalem, the old city in Jerusalem. They're licensed by the Israel Antiquities Authority. There's some in Tel Aviv. There's some in Haifa. Uh, I think there's maybe 60 or 70 licensed dealers today in Israel. And if you buy from a licensed dealer, you shouldn't have a problem. but your question, you know, is looting a problem? Yes, looting is a problem. There are, are uh, people regularly caught illegally excavating. And I don't mean, I mean, you know, you can walk anywhere in Israel and see and, and accidentally stumble over a coin or, or a small artifact and pick it up. Technically, you're supposed to turn that into the, to the government if you do. I, I mean, the, most of the time when I have found coins in Israel, first of all, it hasn't been in recent years, but, you know, second of all, they're mostly blanks, you know. You pick it up and you say, oh, that used to be late Roman or something. But, you know, from time to time, people will find things. But there are groups of people that uh, aggressively go out to known areas and really destroy them, and I'm opposed to that. I'm, I'm very much in favor of coin collectors uh, and, and the legality of collecting coins, and I'm very pleased that Israel still recognizes that. But I think that, you know, we, we have to, everybody that's collecting coins today has to recognize that collecting responsibly is the best way to do it. My own advice to everybody is that you should deal with well-known dealers in your country, and uh, they are likely not to be dealing with fly-by-night people and to be importing things legally. But yet, I mean, I've been at excavations that look like, you know, when you get there to to do your your surface uh, mapping, you know, which you do before you lay it out and start digging, and it looked like the, the place had a mob of gophers that just left. And what it was was people with metal detectors poking down and finding coins. Now, you know, they're... You could argue that there are some places in a country like Israel where maybe a national... Why not let somebody go hunt with a metal detector? Why not have a law like the Treasure Trove Law in England? I think that they should. I think every country should follow England's law because it's been well proven that that law allows us to see much more and learn much more, and it it rewards the nation, and it rewards the finders, and it rewards the scholars and the museums equally. But we can't force other countries to accept laws. Even the United States has very fuzzy laws about walking through your local forest and finding an Indian arrowhead. You know, is it yours? I guess it depends on what land it was. Uh, But certainly, I don't think that there really are any civilized countries and some uncivilized countries that just don't allow people to dig helter-skelter wherever they want to dig for their own personal gain. It's not right. You've alluded to the relationship between individual collectors and the regulatory regimes that 
govern who has who can own antiquities and the legality of that. A major debate playing out between archaeologists and ancient coin collectors concerns limits placed on private acquisitions of items deemed culturally important by the nations hosting archaeological digs. Some nations' collections are perceived as political projects designed to confer cultural legitimacy or a sense of historical grandeur. Where does biblical coinage fit into that schema, and how would you characterize that relationship? Well, I mean, all those things are interesting stories. Now, first of all, the, the one thing that I want to catch you on at the beginning, though, is you said so, sort of like the powers that regulate. The question is we don't know who the powers that regulate that are. I mean, in Israel, it's the Antiquities Authority. In the United States, it's customs. In Germany, it's something else. In England, it's something else. In Cyprus, in Lebanon, in Jordan, it's something else in all these different places. And they all have different rules, some of which they enforce and some of which they only enforce uh, when they want to and some of which they don't enforce at all. But to address your question of cultural property, so let me ask you a question. So let's say that I am in uh, Jordan. And uh, I am walking through an archaeological excavation that's, you know, not a current active excavation, but it's been excavated, and it just rained. And as I'm walking through the excavation, I trip and I fall. And as I get up, I, found, I find seven Judean coins right there. Now, does the cultural heritage of those Judean coins belong more to the government of Jordan which is an Islamic state, or does it belong to a nice Jewish boy who came upon them? I mean, where is the cultural heritage? You, they talk about the cultural heritage in Iraq. And the Iraq, you know, the, that, that's the cradle of civilization, man. That's the cultural heritage of every Jewish and Christian and Muslim person in the world. So they can't tell me it's only their cultural heritage, especially when there are factions of those groups that want to destroy that stuff uh, or, or, or pillage it or loot it. So, you know, I think that, that collectors are the biggest and most significant point that's helped save cultural heritage for uh, a thousand years. And I think it'll continue that way. And if you look at major museums, including the American Numismatic Society, where I'm vice president and an adjunct curator. Our collection is essentially our collection because it was donated to us by fine, scholarly, upstanding collectors. Uh, there are, are many of them today. You know, are there people that, you know, enga that engage in looting and enable looters? Yes, but I like to think that in, in, as we approach modern times and as different countries put down their own laws, we're able to figure out ways. And the other thing is, if I estimate that I've seen a million coins in 50 years, I only look mo uh, mainly at coins in my field. So that means that I can easily say that there are 50 to 100 million ancient coins that have been in collector circulation in the Western Hemisphere, uh, or in, in, in the United States, Canada, Western Europe, Soviet Union. It's all been legal for many, many years. So even if they stop things that are being imported today, there are tons and tons and tons and tons of coins that can keep the market going for a long, long time. You know, I, I hate some of the regulations, but I'm aware that regulations do need to be. I just wish that the people putting out regulations did it according to common sense the way the British do rather than according to, you know, yes, 
uh, only the people who give bribes to the customs office can export coins from this country. And believe me, there are plenty of countries that operate that way. So the British system you would advocate for as, as a good balance between collector interests, um, museum or institutional interests, and, and national or, the, or the British system allows people who are interested to hunt for coins in certain areas. And if they accidentally find coins in those areas, then they have an obligation to actually go to the local coroner, and the local coroner brings it up with the local archaeologist, and then it becomes declared treasure trove. And then the people from the British Museum come in. It's not only coins, it's also artifacts. People from the British Museum come in. They get experts. They get dealers. These things are conserved, studied, and appraised. Mm -hmm. And once they are officially appraised, the museums in England have the chance to buy them for the price of the appraisal and give half of the money to the finder. Meanwhile, all of the information related to that find has been recorded for posterity. You see, in countries in the Middle East where there's no cooperation between finders and, you know, it would be very easy to implement a similar system. Look, you can't look in these areas because these areas are known archaeological sites. But there are beaches, there are parks, and if you want to look there, go ahead because, you know, we know that a lot of coin hoards weren't found in cities because people who were carrying money in between cities were carrying their treasure of gold and silver coins. A lot of times they stopped in a place because they were attacked, they hid their money bag, or they just used it as a safe place like in the backyard. So, you know, there are unusual places where coins can be found, and that's been proven out well in England. You know, ancient coin hoards are not necessarily always connected with archaeological sites. They are archaeological sites in their own right. But by losing the contents of a hoard, the locations of where a hoard was found, we lose a lot. Yeah, that, that all falls under the uh, portable antiquity scheme right. and started in the mid to late 90s, which is, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's always, as, as people have talked about this, uh, broader issue to me that's sort of the model that makes the most sense to respect all the participants and it's really astonishing that more responsible governments have not implemented a similar program because what's happening is it's costing the government money it's costing the government information and it's sort of feeding these illicit thieves that rob uh, uh, known sites. So I, I think that the statistics in England show that, uh, you know, since they implemented the portable antiquity scheme, they have found a tremendous amount of uh, uh, information on stuff that, you know, they have found. Absolutely. Now, let's let's diverge from the, the that so those troubling aspects of it, uh, and, and get back to the what sort of connects people with the um, the coinage itself, the uh, the theological ties, the their symbolism. Can you talk about uh, were these coins are they more symbolic or were they transactional in nature or serve a larger scriptural purpose? I think that, uh, you know, coins were not invented in the Holy Land. As you know, they were invented in Asia Minor. And they were invented probably 100, 150 years before they even got to the Holy Land. 
But if you want to talk about sort of the pure so-called Judean slash biblical coins, the Maccabees, the Herods, you know, these are coins that sort of interestingly, 50 years ago, people were very, 75 years ago, people were very occupied with the Holocaust, with the founding of the state of Israel uh, and things like that. And when they were analyzing and interpreting those coins, they tended to look at them in kind of a funny way, and they sort of isolated them from other coins in the ancient world. Whereas I think today when we look at them, we will say, well, look, the Judean coins are clearly um, descended from the Seleucid Syrian coins. I mean, very clearly in size and denomination, in manufacturing, even in many of the motifs. But the motifs were modified to help the Jews deal with their own religious and political problems, for example, the use of graven images. There's no graven images on the Jewish coins. There's plenty of what could be considered pagan images. Cornucopias were symbols of Greek gods and goddesses, uh, you know, uh, and, and wreaths were victory symbols. Uh, but what the Jews did at the time were they adapted these symbols to their own coinage and they added the, those symbols to their own vocabulary of symbols, and they adopted them as Jewish symbols. But they weren't Jewish symbols, pure and simple. It, they were mostly Greek symbols in the Maccabee coins. When you get to the Herodian coins, they're mostly Roman symbols. And only when you get to the coins of the Jewish war, the first revolt, do you suddenly find a series of coins that actually are filled with Jewish religious symbols and almost no sim, uh, symbolism from the, uh, the Greek or the Roman pantheon. So how pervasive is the problem of counterfeiting in the context of biblical coinage? I imagine that some of those coins would be tempting to fake because some of them have a lot of symbolic interest or might bring big money at an auction. Big, big money is the key. So you guys know that I wrote a book called Not Kosher. Yes. It, it's for sale just down the oh, hall. Is it yeah. still, it's out of print. So if yeah. you can find one, good. It's good. Uh, I, I wrote that book about 15 or 20 years ago, and it's way outmoded because at the time that I wrote it, I used all of the forgeries of this series of coins that I could capture. Uh, but since that time, I've seen many, many more, including uh, as I have walked around the, the floor, the auctions, as I look on V-Coins, as I look here and there. I mean, I call them to the attention. And when dealers, when, when responsible dealers find out they have coins that are probably not ancient, they immediately withdraw them. You know, I called something to the attention of a V-Coins dealer just uh, last night. And by this morning, he had already removed it. And, and by the way, it wasn't an obvious forgery, and it wasn't something that I would have expected him to know. But as soon as I told him, I said, check it, because I think it might be fake. And there are coins that are being withdrawn from auctions all the time. But listen, you know, the, and there are very good fakes that are being made. And you know what I hate is when I'm, when I'm on Facebook or on the Internet and people say, how do you know it's fake? How do you know it's fake? And I always say, well, you know, well, guys, it's the 10,000-hour rule. Uh, you know, <laughs> that we learned about by reading what's yeah. his name's book, Malcolm right? Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell's book. Mm. It's a 10,000-hour rule. But, you know, the truth is that 10, 000, spending 10,000 hours looking at Judean or, biblic or early Christian biblical coins 
is not enough to help you learn it. I've been doing it for 50 years, and I estimate I've done an average of 20 to 30,000 hours every year for 50 years. Uh, you know, maybe I left out a few years when we had our babies. But, I mean, I have, I, have, I have scores or hundreds of thousands of hours in this, and I still look at coins that make me scratch my head. And there's not, like, you can't look at a coin and say, oh, that's fake because the edges are, yeah, sure, sometimes it's an obvious cast, sometimes the colors are wrong, sometimes this, but usually it's just something that smashes you up on the side of the hell, uh, head and shouts, I'm a fake. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like education is really going to be the key in that regard. Uh, what do you recommend? How did you get into it? And what, what are some of the lessons you learned that maybe others uh, can avoid uh, making as far as mistakes? Well, and the, listen, the real lessons are that you have to see and touch as many coins in person as you can. Nowadays, you can only really do that if you live in a city where there are many coin dealers. Hell, I live in New York City. There's not a single ancient coin dealer in New York City. There's more in Chicago or, or in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or in Los Angeles. We don't have a single ancient coin dealer with a shop in Manhattan. Well, you got some old ones here, but not... <laughs> I mean, there's a few guys that have a few ancient coins. But, you yeah. know, when I moved to New York, we had Hans Schulman, Harmer Rook, uh, Coin Gallery, Stacks, uh, there were Joel Cohen, where Tommy Tesserero were. I mean, there were at least a half a dozen basic full-time ancient coin dealers where you could go for lunch and sit for two hours and do Alex Malloy and do nothing but look at ancient coins. And you didn't have to buy them. You just had to look at them. Today, you can really only do this at a coin show or at a shop. I mean, certainly, if you go to a museum, you can look. As far as I know, it's only at the British Museum or the ANS where you can make an appointment and actually be able to sit with a curator and touch and look at coins. In the old days, I used to go to London and go to the British Museum every day for five days in a row and go to their coin room and sign in. Nobody knew me in those days. And, you know, they used to take a tray of coins. I, the first time I went to the British Museum, I didn't know any of the curators. I just said, my name was David Hendon. I wasn't known. And I want, what do you want to look at? I want to look at Jewish coins. Okay, you sign here, you put your name, you put your address, you go in, and then you sit down, and then some nice gentleman comes and says, okay, what do you want to see? And I said, Jewish coins. And he said, well, that's too general. Be more specific. So I literally had to say, well, I want to look at the coins of the Jewish war. He said, be more specific. <laughs> because they had five trays of the coins of the Jewish war. So they would bring me one tray at a time. And, you know, they left me with the trays. They walked away. I mean, they didn't th I mean these days... If you go to a, uh, the museum or any of the big coin dealers in Europe, they weigh the trays before they give them to you because it's not as comfortable as it was before, you know. But the trick is you have to read about the coins to learn the history and understand what you're doing, but you have to see the coins and touch the coins. And if you want to learn about coins, don't listen to the bullshit that you read on Facebook uh, uh, because what you have there is all kinds of people who want to be experts but that aren't experts. There are a few experts, but the true experts mostly keep their mouths shut because they don't have time to fool around with all the people that put fake coins up on, uh, 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 on Facebook or the people that put real coins up and then have the depressing uh, experience of having 10 people say, oh, that's fake, that's fake, when there's nothing at all wrong with the coin or vice versa, a real coin, a, a fake coin, people say, oh, it looks real to me, it looks real to me. People don't know. People, people that are not experts, that haven't studied this for years, they don't know. 
And I have to tell you that I meet coins on a regular basis that stump me. Yeah, and, you, and as you say, you've been doing this for quite a while and literally wrote the book, three books on them. You've got the Guide to Biblical Coins, you've got uh, the Not Kosher out of print, and then the mo more recent one, Cultural, Cultural Change, Change you got yeah, that. published by the ANS. And then you got the, Collecting Coins that was published 35 years ago, not only about biblical coins. I was going to say, that's more general, though. That's, that's, right. and, and then you got my book on ancient scale weights. So and, yeah. Okay, and, you, and you've also done some other stuff as well. Yes, uh, yes. Well, I started as a medical writer, uh, as you know. So I was a medical journalist. So I actually would. I'm curious to hear you expand a little bit on that. Um, you know, the culmination of that effort was your book, Death as a Fact of Life. That was far from the culmination. That was my first hardcover book, published in January of 1973. So, what parallels do you see thematically and, and journalistically? I think Jeff and I are both writers. We're always curious to hear about you know the process of writing and what similarities exist. What so what? parallels do you see between researching and writing about medicine and numismatics? Are it's there any actually, connections? It's, it's really very similar. I mean, when you're, you know, people, I think in, in this age where we have a president who goes around shouting fake news and stuff like that, it's a little depressing for me. I have my master's degree in journalism from the University of Missouri Journalism School. I've taught there uh, in their off-campus New York writing program. I've taught at Columbia Graduate Journalism School. Uh, and I also give lots and lots of numismatic lectures. When, when you're a writer, you, you, you basically always do the same thing. You do your homework and you do your research. A lot of times that's hardcore basic research. A lot of times it's just uncovering people who are willing to talk to you about their own research. So in the case when I was a medical writer, obviously I didn't do any medical research, but I did meet people like Jonas Salk and Denton Cooley and Michael DeBakey and Howard Rusk and Nathan Klein and all these doctors from the 70s and 80s that were real famous and they became my friends and my sources and then there's a whole ton of doctors that you never heard of who worked at the National Institutes of Health. I mean I was a journalist in this uh, full-time journalist from 1969 to 1978 and that was a time of a tremendous amount of uh, research and success in heart transplantation, the break, early breakthroughs in cancer research, and I had the pleasure, and, and also space travel, and I had the pleasure of, you know, reporting on a lot of that stuff. Uh, I could say firsthand because I spent uh, time in operating rooms with the, the heart transplant surgeons. Uh, I knew Christian Barnard. I knew Jonas Salk. Uh, I was in their laboratories with them, but the truth is, you know, they would always, they did the work and they explained it to me. In numismatic writing, it's pretty much the same thing, except that the point is that in numismatics, there's a, there's a, a lower bar to entry. So therefore, b because there's not, a, you know, a, a postgraduate school in numismatics in the United States, um, a great many, and I dare say most of the numismatic experts in the United States are self-taught uh, numismatists who have spent tens of thousands of hours in their lives studying their area of coins. This morning I was talking to a guy that told me he had 200 varieties of Fugio sense. I mean, there's not a professor in America that knows more about fugiosense than this guy does. And, the, and you look at, you know, Arthur Houghton, Eric Newman, uh, you know, the, the people who have written these books. I mean, you have a really very relatively few people who are 
uh, ac academic uh, numismatists, but you have a whole lot of people who are not academic numismatists who have reached the academic level, who get invited to present at symposia all over the world in their fields, less so in American numismatics because they don't do symposia about American numismatics in Europe, but ancient numismatics, I mean, there's a whole ton of American experts who get invited and we go to, you know, different places in, in Europe or around the world. So, I, I don't know. I mean, study is study. You know, yeah. what journalists do is study and, 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 and write down the stories. And, you know, by the way, I mean, if, if you think about it, you know, who was it that wrote down the New Testament? Not who made up, who, it's not who told the stories of the New Testament the first time, because the first time those stories about Jesus in Tiberias or by the Sea of Galilee or in Bethsaida or someplace else, those were all, that was an oral tradition, even from Jesus. It was an oral tradition for a couple of hundred years. And finally, somebody wrote it down. And when they wrote it down, they referred to other works, m many of which don't exist anymore. Josephus quotes works that don't exist anymore. So, you know, we don't even know if they did exist, but we assume they did. So research has been research. But the problem is that, it, you know, I mean, uh, I used to think it was Ben Bradley, the former oh, editor of the Post. Washington Post. Uh, uh, also a friend of mine, but it was his boss, uh, uh, Philip Graham, who uh, 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 came up with the line that journalism is the first rough draft of history. Yes. And journalism, uh, Ben Bradley mentioned it in his, uh, quoted that in his book on John F. Kennedy, uh, uh, Assassination. Profiles and Courage. Pro okay, was okay. It, uh, not, sorry, that was John F. Kennedy's book. Ben Bradley wrote a book about John F. Kennedy, and he quoted that quote in the, and it, it, it's, it's very meaningful to me because journalism is the first rough draft of history. When we write an article of a thousand words or 500 words or 600, whatever our boss tells us to write, by definition, we can't write everything we've learned. But what we do is we put down the highlights. Now, a hundred years from now, a lot of the other information that we learned might no longer be available. So somebody comes along and picks up all the old issues of the coin of Coin World or the Salator or some other newspaper or magazine. All they have to read is the work that you did or the work that I did, uh, and they may not have all the access. So then they have to take that and then they have to fill in more. So you know, and go back and do other work. Yeah. So every story that gets written leaves out things. You know, if you're a good journalist, you're not leaving out things to slant your story. You're just leaving out things to try to make your story as complete as possible. Yeah, I think the common thread throughout all of this, though, is the zeal for knowledge and, and the willingness to pursue it. And that's why, you know, you, you mentioned there's no coin shops here in New York. That's why it's, it's good to have this New York International Absolutely. show and uh, spend some time looking researching, hunting for the truth that's out there with the ancient world. We thank you again for your time. This has been a blast, uh, I, at least on my end. I know, uh, I, I think, I Lots see Chris fun. Great to see head. you guys. And uh, I, I, I can tell from your passion, from knowledge, from your knowledge, that we could be here for hours. I don't know that we want to do that. Well, you don't want to put your reader, your listeners to sleep either. Oh, so. uh, the, the, this is you. you got I don't them, think they'd be in any danger. You, you got them. You you got. We got some fired up today, so we we appreciate it. Good stuff. Yeah, next time we talk about finding coins at excavations. Absolutely, illegal excavations. Beautiful. That'll be interesting. Thanks again for being Thank here. You guys.
That was Chris and I's interview with David Hendon at the New York International Numismatic Convention. We thank you for listening. We thank David for participating and the show host uh, being a site where we could have such a lively discussion. And if you found that discussion informative, if you enjoyed um, the podcast that you just listened to, if you've enjoyed any of our previous material, the best way to support us is to keep on listening every week. Reach out to us with any questions, comments, concerns, et cetera, that you have. And please subscribe on whatever platform that you uh, get your podcasts on. But until next week, happy collecting. happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Thanks for the segue, big voice guy. This is Brian again reminding you to sign up for the Coinworld email newsletters. It's free and easy to do. Just click on the link I put in the show notes. Choose your topics, and the high-quality content you expect from CoinWorld will be on its way shortly. So click on that link to sign up, and thanks for listening to the show.